Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Stacey Penna, the Growth Marketing Director at Lumavero. Today's podcast is with Danya Veers, Principal Research Fellow and Team Leader with the Biomedical Ethics Research Group at Murdoch Children's Research Institute. We will be discussing her work with inductive content analysis. So welcome, Danya. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your work at Murdoch Children's Research Institute, which is in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, so I've been working there for about five to six years now. I did my postdoc in Belgium and then moved back to Australia where my family is. Most of my work focuses on ethical issues around um, genomic technologies. So I work on a bunch of different projects, things like genomic newborn screening, automated reanalysis, and I also supervise students on a range of different projects that are actually not related to genomics as well. So things like end-of-life care, it depends on the technology that they're using. So part of what you were working on at the Research Institute was doing qualitative research. And so you started using a technique, inductive content analysis, more often. So can you talk a little bit more about that method? Inductive content analysis is a qualitative analytical method. I guess the goal of ICA, as we call it, is to produce an overall summary of multiple texts. So it's characterized by two main features. First, it involves an inductive process, as the title indicates. That means that the codes and categories are derived from the data rather than being predetermined. And then I guess the second process is that it's an iterative process. So that means that the coding of the transcripts is defined based on comparison with others in the data set. So you end up coding those transcripts multiple times. So in a typical study, how long will that process take sometimes? It depends on how many data pieces I guess you've got. So I guess a lot of the research I do, I would have up to 20 interviews. So each interview might take as a first round coding a few hours, and then you do a second round coding, which would go a bit faster. So we're talking many days of analysis, <laughs> but I guess it's still it's still quite a bit of a quicker method than things like thematic analysis, where you've got sort of more in-depth coding. And why did you decide to write a paper on this type of qualitative method? Because people are starting to read it and want to learn more about it. So why did you decide to do that? It all started in my PhD, actually. So my supervisor, Professor Lynn Gillam, and I were thinking about what kind of method I wanted to use for my study, which was looking at ethical issues around genetic carrier testing in children. And we thought that something like inductive content analysis would be great. So I started doing some research around what how to do that and just found it was a bit of a mess. Mm-hmm. So firstly, in terms of the terminology, it was hard to find inductive content analysis because people were calling it all kinds of different things. So things like just qualitative content analysis or content analysis on its own. And there were lots of different subtypes that they were talking about, and it just felt really confusing. And then I guess I was looking at some of the descriptions of how to do it, and it didn't seem very intuitive. And some of them were more deductive, it sounded, and some of them were a bit more involving things like counting, which didn't seem appropriate for qualitative research. So I just felt like we needed to do something to help junior researchers to figure out how to do this better. I found that too, because a lot of people will come to us with like in vivo, like how do you do content analysis? And a lot of time it is more around the counting part of it, which in vivo can help you with that and the different methods. But um, yeah, I always find it interesting too. And how is inductive content analysis different from deductive content analysis and thematic analysis? 
So I guess deductive content analysis, as the term indicates, means that the, it's a deductive process. And that just means that the code list that you're using to code your data is predetermined. So the where the codes are developed based on things like the literature, or maybe you've done a mixed method study, so you've got some previous work in that area that, that indicates what kind of codes you might be looking for. Or maybe you're using some kind of theoretical framework, which is quite common in things like implementation science, for example. So you're only going to be coding things that fit with that predetermined list. And that's different from ICA, where you don't have a set list, you're going in inductively, and you code everything that fits with the research question. In terms of how it differs from thematic analysis, I guess there are two main ways that it differs. The first way is that it, you code differently. So with ICA, your first round of coding involves coding larger sections of text into broad or big picture categories. And those often, but not always, correspond with the questions you're asking the participants. And then with the thematic analysis, you're coding more fine-grained for that first round. So that's a bit different. And that's kind of often referred to as line-by-line -line coding. The other way that ICA differs from thematic analysis is that in last, that last sort of interpretation step. So in thematic analysis, it's really important that the overarching themes that you find through your analysis are sort of theorised to create an overall interpretation. So with ICA, it's a bit different. You don't actually have to do that final abstraction component of the analysis. How is data analyzed with inductive content analysis? You sort of went through the coding and how it's different. Is there anything else that you would do? Yeah, so maybe I guess the coding is probably the most important part because I guess it, there there is an interpretation component that is still important because obviously you don't analyze your, your data in a bubble. But I guess it, it doesn't involve as much theory as you would in necessarily involve in something like thematic analysis. But there are multiple steps to the coding, and I can go through those if you're interested. Yeah, if you don't mind just listing them, I think people would be interested. This podcast is sponsored by LumaVero, developers of Invivo and other software designed by and for data experts to illuminate powerful new insights that help customers make decisions with confidence. If you're looking for a better way to analyze and manage your qualitative data, try using Envivo with the 14-day trial. I guess it's really important that when you start doing analysis with ICA that you read and familiarize yourself with the text. And it's particularly important if you haven't actually collected that data yourself. The second step is to do this first round coding that I mentioned earlier. So the first round coding is identifying those really big picture meaning units. And so it's often related to those questions that you asked. So it might be if I'm asking questions about what kind of reasons parents might want to know the carrier status of their child, it's likely that one of the, the big category meaning units that I'm going to be coding is reasons that they want to know the, the carrier status of their child. So that's kind of the first step. And you sort of do massive chunks of text in that instance. So the bits you're coding might be a full paragraph or half a page, depending on how much of that text relates to that initial code. The second step is to do some more fine-grained coding. So you're going to be looking at the code, the information that you've got underneath those big broad categories, and you're going to be doing a bit more of a fine-grained coding to sort of nut out exactly what they're talking about. So it might be that if I'm looking at the reasons why parents might want to know the carry status to their child, it might be that those reasons are things like wanting to communicate information to their children or out of curiosity or interest or something like that. So that's sort of the second round coding. And then it might be that you've got even more detail you need to unpackage. And so you might do a third round of coding, which would just be even more fine grained. So at the end of it, this process, you're going to end up with a big coding schema that's going to have a bunch of different broad categories and then also some fine grained categories underneath those as well as so the subcategories. 
And then I guess the final step is looking at sort of the interpretation of, and synthesis of this information. So as I indicated, you don't necessarily need to do that in relation to theory, but you do need to bring together all these categories and subcategories to create some kind of story or meaning from the data. But it's really important not to lose the nuances of that information when you're doing that process. So think of it as if you've got the data as like a map. Necessarily, you just want to put the main roads on the map. You want to put all the, the minor roads as well. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of helps create a full picture of the data. Do you use any tools to help you visualize that map or do you just draw it out? Or It's more just in terms of mapping out the categories and subcategories. So some people do do it in like a sort of a, a mind map, kind of mm-hmm. um, like looking at bubbles kind mm-hmm. of all fit together. And you can do that on some of the programs that you can use. I just use lines within a Word document, to be honest. That works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so when is it appropriate to use inductive content analysis? So I think it's a, it's a really good question. ICA is a good exploratory analytical method, so it's really useful when we don't know much about the topic. It's also really great for projects where you might want some really practical outcomes or recommendations. So, for example, projects where you're wanting to examine and potentially improve practices or services or when you want to develop policy or guidelines. But it's really applicable across many areas, both in healthcare research and also beyond that as well. And why do you think it's suited uh, to practically oriented research of the kind often undertaken by students and health-related courses or health professionals? Because I know that's your focus yourself, more in health and science. So why do you think it helps in related research? I think it's a really straightforward method, to be honest. The way you analyze your data is so closely aligned with the questions you ask your participants. And that means that when you you do your analysis, you actually come out with very practical results and answers, and they lend themselves really well to making suggestions or recommendations on how to improve practice, which I guess is probably the ultimate goal of most health-related research. I agree with you. Sometimes when people that are in health or nonprofits or government settings when they're doing research that I would think this would be a good method to use for them because typically you're right, they have their research question already and then the steps seem very clear to me and something that people could follow even if they're not as acquainted with qualitative research as some other people. Would you agree with that or? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just some of the more involved methods like thematic analysis I guess that they're very helpful and they have their own settings where they're very useful. I guess thematic analysis is a very good exploratory method as well. But I guess I feel like when you're trying to get develop practical outputs, it's not necessarily the best method to use. It's sort of more phenomenological approach is probably mm-hmm. more appropriate. So what type of technology could be used with inductive content analysis? So I guess I have students that use InVivo and I have used it myself and it works really well. I think that's because it's it works very well with being able to code multiple times and also for multiple components. So particularly when you're trying to develop like the categories and subcategories, it's, it's very intuitive, but it's not necessary. And I also have students that just prefer to use Word documents. And so they will have their interview transcript in a Word document and then they'll create other Word documents for each of the major categories that they're coding for. And then you just kind of make sure you refer back using like line numbers or something so you can track where you've done the coding of each of the transcripts. But I guess that probably involves some extra steps. But I think any any of the programs that you can use are very helpful. Uh, you can do it on paper that you print out if you want to. It's a, a method that doesn't really require a particular technology. I would say the one plus if you're using qualitative data analysis software is that 
the way you describe the coding is that it sounds like it'd be easy to create a hierarchy with that and be able to export that even as a visual to show your codes to people. It does make it a lot easier. And I think it's also just easier to keep track of what you've coded altogether. I I agree from using it myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can you describe some research studies where you've used ICA? So I guess the one I have referred to already was the one I did for my PhD, which was looking at genetic carrier testing in children. And I, as part of that study, I did two sets of data collection and analysis. And the first was doing interviews with genetic health professionals, asking them about their practices around parents requesting carrier testing for their children, and then if they actually let them have testing or not. And the second was doing interviews with the parents who had requested or who were interested in getting carrier testing for their children and exploring the reasons behind that. But I've used it on a lot of different topics as well. So we're currently analysing the data from focus groups and members of the public about implementation aspects and risks and benefits to do with genomic newborn screening. And that's been a really interesting study. We've done focus groups with members of the public and also health professionals and laboratory scientists about using um, artificial intelligence to analyse genomic data. And I've done interviews with laboratory scientists about their reporting practices from genomic sequencing. So it's, it's really very flexible. And I've got colleagues who've used it for other projects that obviously aren't related to genomics as well. So it's, it's something that can be used across the board. So you've been saying we. So how many people do you typically work with in a research study? So it depends on the research study and the funding, I guess. A lot of the work I did for my postdoc, which was around reporting and use of genomic sequencing technologies in the diagnostic setting, I did that pretty independently, but I always had someone else to help do a bit of co-coding, which I think is a really important component of um, doing any qualitative research method of analysis. And then I guess at the moment I have a postdoc who works with me, and so she and I do a lot of the analysis together and data collection together. But I also have research assistants that are helping on other projects. So I would say in general, a team for the analysis would have at least two people, but it depends on the project. And I know when we first talked, you were saying that because in the literature, inductive content analysis or content analysis in general was sort of not explained very well. And since you've had some papers come out sort of describing the method you described to me and us, people are now coming to you asking, right, for more information and maybe training on this. Is that correct? Yeah, I just had an email from someone I met at a conference recently in the UK, but they're from Portugal and they just asked me if there was any training I was doing in the near future, which I I don't have lined up, but I probably should think about doing some. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's something that people are are sort of latching onto as something that they find really useful. And I'm getting lots of positive feedback about the paper, which is great, but I think people also like having a bit of person-to-person support, but I'm just one person, so I'm not sure I can do that for everybody who reads the paper. But yeah, there's definitely definitely a bit of feedback that's coming through, which is really great. So have you done organized trainings on it or not? Like more internally at the research institute? I've done a couple of seminars at the the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. We've got a qualitative research community of practice. And so I've done a couple of seminars on that, on ICA there. I also got asked to do a a seminar for another school within the University of Melbourne that we're interested in and another qualitative research interest group that was through the University of Melbourne as well. So yeah, I think that it seems like there's definitely a a desire for more information. Yeah, it could be a side job for you (laughs) in your spare time. (laughs) In all my spare time, yeah. (laughs) 
We'll take a quick break from the episode. You can find Dr. Veer's research work on the Murdoch Children's Research Institute website, www.mcri.edu.au. So my last question is, what is one piece of advice you would give a qualitative researcher using inductive content analysis for the first time? So I guess like any qualitative research method, when you first start out, it feels kind of messy. I always get students saying, am I doing it right? It doesn't feel like it's very rigorous and everything. I guess just to say that you have to remember that it's meant to feel messy when you start out because you're just trying to make sense of all the data as well as learning a new technique. And it gets less messy as you make sense of your data. But I think it's really important to have experienced advisors or peers to help make sure you're on track. I think another couple of things that I find just with the coding that I think are really important for new people to keep in mind um, is just to stick quite closely to the data when you're doing your initial coding. And one of the things I often find with students is they over-extrapolate from the data. So they actually think that people are saying things about autonomy or something like that when really they're not actually saying that. And we're just thinking that because we're going in with the lens that we're analysing the data with. So I guess that's one of the things I just constantly pick up students on is just staying close to the data and not being overly broad in what you're coding. So thank you, Dr. Veers, for talking with us. And thanks to those tuning in. Listeners, if you learn more about inductive content analysis, we'd appreciate your support by rating and subscribing to the Inviva podcast. This helps us to share these amazing narratives with the research community. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about Invivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna, P-E-N-N-A, at qsrinternational.com.